This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry. Episode 16, France as Oceanic Competitor. Hitherto, only mentioned parenthetically is France. Sometimes we exaggerate the unity of a nation, China or Spain, perhaps even France. When looking for a unified France, a French entity as late as 1900, historian Eugen Weber found it slipping through his fingers into a multitude of particular Frances, all inclined to draw apart from one another and to remain unrepentantly ignorant of each other. France was a multilingual community with only 20% of its people speaking French. Geography makes France an hexagonal state, the French sometimes say. Of relevance to our subject would be the hypothesis of Edward Fox of two Frances. France number one is a territorial nation-state with a national capital at Paris, unchallenged as the center of affairs. France number one sought wealth and power through control of territory, looking to dominate Western Europe. It reflects a deeply rooted peasant craving for land. It is continental in its orientation. France number two faced the ocean on which the destiny of the modern world would be decided. France number two has coastline, harbors, seafarers, a substantial population mass ready for colonization on a grand scale, a mercantile network of riverine and coastal cities feeding oceanic traffic. Marseille, Toulon, Bordeaux, Nantes, Saint-Malo provide thriving seaport homes for fishermen and merchant ships. In short, all the resources for a glorious oceanic career. A peak would be achieved under Jean-Baptiste Colbert in the 17th century, one of France's greatest statesmen, with, among other talents, an oceanic vision. Colbert tried to create both a navy and a merchant marine to build ships and seaports, especially on the Atlantic. Brest, Lorient, Rochefort, but also set on the Mediterranean. But he was in too much of a hurry, without a successor, and with a royal master, Louis XIV, not always sympathique. Louis's ambition was to dominate the continent, not the seas. Furthermore, France faced the handicap of two widely separated seas, the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. This made for a structural problem, two fleets, and conflicting sets of maritime interests. The maritime periphery of France became a ready focus for dissidents. French Protestants, Huguenots, clustered there, and they were much more oceanic in their orientation than were their Catholic compatriots. The religious wars caused many to flee, often people of talent, thus enriching the Netherlands and England, as well as other countries where they settled, including New Amsterdam, 
New York's predecessor. Ultimately, continental thinking would prevail. The French preoccupation would always be the Rhine. The land frontier has always devoured French history, Brodel would say, with the French people always distracted by the ominous threat on the frontier or by the glittering promise lying beyond it, the opportunity to become the hegemon of Europe. As Brodel says, to tell France not to fight on land was like telling it not to exist. And in any case, would Europe have allowed it to abstain? France had integrated the first large European land-based polity by the mid-1700s. The French developed a high-tech national communications network with the mechanical telegraph. It was, of course, restricted by line of sight and the range of telescopes to good weather and to daylight, but it was the first step towards separating or liberating communications from transportation. Post roads and canals furnished a pre-industrial equivalent of today's high-speed trains as well as a high-speed road system. French naval technology was as good or better than any. The British prize captured French ships. The French were the first to recognize chart-making as a state responsibility. The British followed the precedent, and both were active in pursuing seaborne science. But the French conducted also a highly successful oceanic trade. By 1789, in the outbreak of revolution, this trade was greater than that of the British. In the epic struggle with Britain by the turn of the century in 1800, France had 27 million people, Britain only 11 million. The two were equal in per capita income, but France was more than twice as rich because of the size of its population. An incredibly productive agriculture, undergirding one of the world's greatest cuisines, nourished commerce and infrastructure. A thriving manufacture focused on luxury goods and set standards for craftsmanship, design, and taste. In this sphere, French leadership in Europe was unquestioned. They were arbiters of taste bellwethers in philosophy, arts, and literature. French became the language of diplomacy, eclipsing Latin. Affairs of state were conducted by a competent and sophisticated bureaucracy, possessing enormous cultural self-assurance, as great as that of the Chinese. But most French people were poor, ignorant, peasant farmers, like the Chinese and many others. An inefficient financial administration burdened monarchical France. Taxation was heavy, and the merchant class paid more than its share. An increasingly despotic government was often capricious and stifled change. The banking system was undeveloped. The government could not gain the confidence of investors, hence, even though its economic resources 
were substantially greater than those of Britain in the 18th century, French capacity to borrow in time of war was far less. Thus, the artificial wealth of Britain, that is, its stable credit system, proved superior to the natural wealth of France. And after 1789, France was in revolution, which led to chronic political instability, a struggle to find and establish consensus, a leadership in turmoil. This affected the navy profoundly, since it decimated the aristocrats who dominated the officer class. During the final Napoleonic episode, France put most of its resources into fighting on land, building Bonaparte's ambitious pan-European empire. In strategic terms, this French preoccupation allowed Britain to maintain, essentially without challenge, a continuous control of its home waters and to defend its far-flung colonial and commercial interests. The French elephant faced the British whale. This was land power versus sea power, the continental versus the oceanic. France was reduced to commerce raiding at sea with cruising warships and privateers, with battle fleets making occasional forays in pursuit of limited objectives. The results were generally inconsequential, except for participation in the American Revolution. Britain's Royal Navy kept the trade routes open to the flow of wealth, and Britain was not invaded despite Napoleon's hopes. The British perfected the art of the blockade. Our Navy keeps every one of our enemies bound in chains upon their own coasts, one admiral boasted. The storm-tossed warships of the Royal Navy by sealing off the French from the world ocean could disrupt the French oceanic trade network. And with its borrowing power, Britain could mobilize an army, maintain large naval forces, and keep them active over the course of a long war, and also subsidize the military operations of allied continental powers. The British could use sea power, transport, to maximize land power, mounting expeditionary forces when necessary. The great General Wellington could thrust home his lance at whatever point on the continent he chose. Furthermore, despite the costs of fighting, with trade continuing during the conflict, war generated an expanding wealth for Britain. War comes down to a matter of financial capacity. The deepest pocket must win. But it is also a matter of political will. Britain had both. In 1815, Britain emerged from the Napoleonic Wars as the world's dominant sea power. The Tudor Navy rarely had more than 30 warships. By 1815, the Royal Navy had more 
than a thousand warships plus a hundred and thirty thousand men. This was the world's only significant fighting fleet. Seized by spirit of triumphalism, fused with a sense of national virtue, a predestination of greatness. Only Britain was committed to a total belief in the importance and linkage of trade and naval strength to the national welfare. Only Britain, as an island nation, had both the need and the opportunity to make such a total commitment. For Britain, defeat at sea would have meant economic collapse, the starvation of millions with social and political revolution. The irony is that oceanic enterprise had created this vulnerability, but also offered the means to prevent it from happening. Building and maintaining the Royal Navy shaped the British state, expanding the size of government and its role in the economy, stimulating trade and production, provoking readiness for the Industrial Revolution. The British built an oceanic empire on the technology of wind and wood, based on the North Atlantic as its core, enjoying a hospitable, temperate climate like that of England, but with lands underpopulated and undeveloped. Britain lost much of this North Atlantic core at the end of the 18th century, and with abolition of the slave trade in 1807, sharply diminishing the value of the Caribbean. But Britain, being an oceanic state, having great flexibility, could now begin to build, in the 19th century, a second oceanic empire, based upon a new technology of steam and iron, a triumph of manufacturing, and with a new strategic center, South Asia and the Indian Ocean. And so we move into transition, the next phase of our journey. We see the maritime world facing enormous challenges with the birth and practice of new technologies. We move from wood and sail to iron and steam. This second phase of oceanic revolution carries immense consequences, as we shall see. A profound transformation occurs. So, join us for episode 17, A Great Transformation. Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry, with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg. Recording by 1623 Studios in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Production and distribution by Albert Buichadé-Ferré. Goodbye until next time.